Welcome to Ride Pure, the Royal Enfield podcast, a podcast about Royal Enfield motorcycles, the people who create and build them, you, the people that ride them, the things you do to them, and the places you explore on them. I'm Gordon May, Royal Enfield's historian, author, and overland motorcycle traveler, and I'll be hosting this Adventure Diaries episode. We're super excited to be joined once more by motorcycle adventurer Jack Groves for part two of his record-breaking round-the-world journey on a Royal Enfield Himalayan. For those listeners joining us who haven't yet listened to Jack's uh, enthralling adventures uh, so far in the first episode, here's a quick recap. Uh, Age 19, he bought a Royal Enfield Himalayan second-hand Uh, In just a matter of weeks, equipped himself and the motorcycle for a round-the-world journey. Age 21. (laughs) Age 21, was it, Jack? 21. I thought it was was 21 when you got home. 23, 23, bang on 24, pretty much, when I got home. And I left left at uh, 21. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Making you, you, uh, the years will fly by quickly enough without me adding on to them, Jack. Okay. So left left home at 21 uh, with an ambition to ride around the world on his Himalayan, rode through Europe. Um, once he got into uh, Greece, he turned east into Turkey and then headed up into Central Asia through uh, beautiful Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, where he had an accident which damaged the frame of his Himalayan. Uh, then into China, across the high Hem- Himalaya, and then down into Southeast Asia through Laos to Thailand, uh, where we rejoin today at uh, a Royal Enfield dealership in Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai, right? I was thinking Nong Kai again. Uh, <laughs> Chiang Mai, where uh, uh, Jack's frame was being uh, replaced while he had, in his own words, a holiday within his holiday. So, Jack, over to you, Thailand, and then ha- heading down through Malaysia to catch a flight to Australia. I understand. Exactly, exactly. I had, uh, I got to, as I, as I, as I uh, remember very vividly, leaving China, and then suddenly you're into the in, in, sort of intoxicating energy of Southeast Asia, and you've got sort of the heat and the humidity. Uh, everyone's drinking beer. Everyone's having a party. You've got Western tourists suddenly. Hostels are bursting with people, uh, and I remember just walking around in a bit of a daze really having come out of china where you were the only person that that that, that was really traveling and every time you stopped it was a it was a, um, a sort of a, a local amusement and you, you, you felt like a walking theme park everyone sort of came and sort of looked at you and who's that westerner on their on their large motorcycle traveling through whereas in southeast asia no one gave you a second glance it was a complete you're a non-entity you're just one of the many many faces that travel through southeast asia um on on, on various uh, backpacking trips so um it was obviously a bit of a culture shock but also a, a really nice breath of fresh air to to, to fit to sort of disappear into the crowd again and, and, and not sort of stand out and uh, and feel like everyone's eyes are on you the entire time um and so i had a lot of fun a lot of a lot of fun uh, in laos and then we crossed the border into thailand um spent some weeks in, in the jungle trekking lots of the waterfalls whilst the bike was getting fixed in chiang mai um i remember turning up at chiang mai and uh, the enfield dealer walked out he said we've heard of you we, we've heard you're coming from 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 our colleagues in uh, in in europe and in india um and uh, basically, over the course of two to three weeks, they stripped the bike back uh, to the frame, replaced the subframe, um, replaced the tires, did lots of the filters and lots of the sort of mechanical things that, uh, that you want to have done or want to do about halfway around. Um, and uh, after three or four weeks or so, uh, I got back on the road. And that three or four weeks is a real holiday within a holiday, within a sort of the, the two years. I was able to, to travel, uh, hire another bike, hire a few other bikes, a scooter. Um, a Honda Rebel. We sort of, yeah, had, had good fun, but I was always aware um, that there was the overarching goal to, you know, uh, you could easily lose yourself in Southeast Asia and um, the fact that it's so easy to travel and everyone else is there. But actually, there was an overriding goal. And Sean, what, what, what did it feel like to get back on your Himalayan and uh, be back on the road again? Just Was it repaired? It, it, it was it was quite you know literally like having um, your wingman shot out of the sky and then suddenly uh, you're flying along by yourself for a minute and then suddenly he's back you know back next to you and 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 you're back you're back together again and it was real 
a really strong feeling of um i think of attachment to the bike because by that point obviously uh, it had taken me so far and um through my own my own bad actions i managed to sort of uh, weaken the frame and then crack the frame uh but obviously through the help of royal enfield um I was able to get get back on the road again. So I'm massively grateful to the team in Chiang Mai who put you know, down tools and everything else and put it back together again um, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to sort of save me my blushes. Um, and then I think it, would, it must have been around late November time. I got back on the road from Chiang Mai, headed up into Pai, and then all the way down the border with uh, with Myanmar, through the mountains, through the... Um, the, the rivers that go down the the Mai Hong Song loop, the the valley that go the, that runs down the border with Myanmar, heading south towards a place called Kanchanaburi, which is a bridge over the River Kwai, the famous World War Two death railway that the the Japanese forced the Western, particularly the Australian uh, prisoners of war, to build. Hence the famous film, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. You can actually visit the uh, the, the bridge over the River Kwai. It doesn't quite look like it does in the film, but it was still, uh, for a history history nerd like me, it was uh, still very interesting. Um, and then from there, I went to Bangkok, into the hustle and bustle and the energy of Bangkok. Um, got caught on the overpass on the way there, um, thinking that uh, I'll just ignore the sign saying no motorbikes allowed. If I did, yeah, I had to take the overpass to get into the centre, get into the uh, into the Enfield dealership in the centre in time. So I thought, you know what, I'll risk it. I'll play innocent. I don't know what you're talking about. So I drove through the barrier, uh, despite the, the guard leaning out and sort of saying, no, 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 and waving his hand. And, and I sort of played the stupid Brit and waved back and said, hello, you know, I'm not sure, not sure what you're saying. That lasted about half an hour uh, until I was pulled over and uh, the, the cops gave me a good dressing down. Um, and basically said I had to pay an outrageously big fine, uh, to which I was able to wriggle out of by playing the the silly Brit abroad. Um, So, yeah, I had about a week or two in in Bangkok. I thought I was going to hate it. I ended up loving it. Um, An amazing place, an amazing city, lots of, you know, it is definitely an assault on the census, but it, I think it's something that everyone everyone should experience if they can, if they can get get to Bangkok. I wouldn't recommend riding a motorbike into the centre, um, unless you illegally use the overpass, which is a quicker way of doing it. Uh, but if you go on the ground, ground level uh, with every, with everyone else, it's uh, it's an absolute pandemonium. So um, it took me later on when I actually left Bangkok two weeks later, it then took me five hours or six hours, I think it was, to get even anywhere near out of the city. It was just hell on earth. Um, so finally left Bangkok. With, uh, with the bike kitted up with some SRC Moto um, components that I've managed to find in the city, uh, which is a great Thai brand that are making these parts. Um, and I headed south to Malaysia, all the way down the coast. Went for the, aim, aiming for the, the, the party islands of Koh Phanang, Koh Samui and Koh Tao. Uh, I ended up spending um, a few days there. And then, but I was always aware, and this is around the time that my my, my dad was messaging me saying, um, "What what do you think about me joining for Australia? What do you, what do you is that is that a good idea, a bad idea?" And I remember looking at it, thinking, "Is he is he joking? Is he is, is <laughs> my dad hasn't ridden since I was born um, because uh, because my 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 mum vetoed it when I was born." Um, but I said, I said to him, "Yeah, of course it's of course it's of course it's fine. Why, why would it not be fine? We'd have to think about how to get you a bike." And he said, uh, yeah, well, that's the problem. I'm not sure. I've, I've looked around and no one will allow me to pick up the bike in Perth and drop it in Sydney. And so uh, you know, they have to bring it the entire continent back. So I said, well, why don't I I'll ask Royal Enfield now that I'm, you know, now that I'm in touch with them because I, they helped me with my problem in China. Why don't I ask them if they have a, a bike to, um, you know, to, to, to lend you, for example, in Perth? So I did. And um, lo and behold, the, uh, the Royal Enfield team in Australia said to me, uh, yeah, we do have a bike, actually, a press bike that's just hanging around. Um, and we do actually need it dropped off back in Melbourne. So if you wouldn't mind, um, <laughs> I, uh, they basically said there'll be a Himalayan here for you. So uh, at that point, I had a date. I suddenly had a date. I had a time all the way down uh, through, the, through, through Thailand. Right around this time, I also realized that my... Uh, my vehicle permit on the bike had run out that expired um, and I'd overextended it about two weeks. So uh, if anyone knows the current rules in Thailand about overlanding, they're not particularly keen on people overstaying their, their, their permits. Um, it's really a big no, no. So uh, I was looking online, my immigration was fine, but I'd forgotten like an absolute moron to extend my bike permits. Um, 
so that was a really big problem because I thought, well, I don't, I can't pay you know five hundred pounds or whatever the fine was. How am I going to get out of this? So I remember looking at Google Maps and thinking, well, where's the smallest, most obscure remote border I can find? Found one in the mountains, headed for there, uh, and I remember parking up at about three o'clock uh, on a on a Friday afternoon and thinking that the border guards would be, you know, quite sleepy after lunch Friday afternoon, not long to check off, and they close the border for the weekend. Um, so I'm pulled up, and just before the border post, I pulled up got off the bike, took my helmet off, took my jacket off, put a, um, a, a, a sort of a, a normal jacket on, rucksack on my back, and I walked up to the border post with a baseball cap on um, and uh, handed my passport over. I said absolutely nothing about the motorbike. They said, oh, walking through the border on foot, are you? I said, yeah, 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 walking through on foot, passenger. Okay, stamp, stamp, stamp. And then as I walked out, I then walked ducked, looked around, make sure no one was looking at me, walked back around the immigration block Um sort of ducking under the windows with my head to make sure that nobody saw me found the bike got back on the bike helmet on and basically just drove out of the uh, out of the compound no one asked any questions the guy at the gate uh, opened the door assumed that i'd had everything every box ticked and uh, and off i went so uh, i'm still not allowed back in thailand for i think it's about 2 or 3 years um, because uh, yeah, the, the Thai Thai authorities are well aware that I managed to get out of the country with a with a very very overstayed uh, bike. So um, that took me into Malaysia, and then from Malaysia all the way down the coast to um, to, to to Kuala Lumpur. Lots of monsoonal rains um, and horrendous weather. Uh, obviously, this is monsoon season in Southeast Asia, and the and the rain clouds will absolutely soak you, and then they will absolutely dry you, and then absolutely soak you. And it is this: you're constantly in like a you're either in a washing machine or a or a tumble dryer, um, and uh, neither neither of them is very fun. Uh, one particular moment, as I came into KL uh, towards the airport in a full fledged lightning storm, um, I remember thinking. This is a little bit sketchy, and normally I I have this silly personality trait where if it's getting a, if it's a bit difficult, rather than thinking I'll stop and pull over and get a cup of tea, um, I'll just keep going because you know I'm already wet or I'm already cold or I'm already a bit scared. I may as well. It's not going to stop if I if I stop. Um, this very nearly ended up being a bad moment because I was quite in, in quite a remote uh, sort of coastal road in Malaysia, heading towards KL. The lightning suddenly the lightning storm it was it was above me and it was it was all around me um and i was very aware i was ducking ducking down behind my windshield as though that would have helped if i'd been hit by a lightning bolt which it clearly wouldn't have done um and i was just sort of thinking crikey uh, there's no i couldn't see any any buildings uh so i thought i'm just gonna have to keep going until i find some sort of shelter some sort of shelter there were just sort of rice paddy fields to my right and left um, occasionally with like a tree on the, on the corner of one of the fields. And suddenly, as I'm going along, I just suddenly just blinded by this um, this sort of, you know, uh, impact to my, to my left. And it can't have been more than 20, 30 meters away. Um, and as I look through my uh, through my visor this this tree effectively that was in the rice paddy uh, was hit by a bolt of lightning because obviously everything around is flat and there's just a few trees standing up uh and this tree just you know flashes in my in my in my left eye um and wood is just flies everywhere across the road i remember just seeing bits of wood fly across the road um and i remember thinking one of the moments where i was my heart for a moment, you know, skipped one, two slash 10 beats. Um, and within about, you know, a few hundred meters, I then found a small shack selling some groceries. And I just drove my bike clean into this man's, into this man's uh, um, uh, corner store, uh, to which he <laughs> jumped up in surprise as I sort of drove in covered in water, uh, you know, the bike, um, uh, the, the bike sort of steaming as the water drops hit the exhaust and the engine. And uh, I said to him, I, I very nearly got hit by lightning. And I, all my, my body language and my sign language is good enough for him to understand that um, I did need a bit of shelter. So uh, that was my second to last day in Malaysia. I got to the airport the next day, um, booked an airport hotel that uh, that someone had told me about, got the bike clean in a day um, and pretty much got prepared for Australia. And clean in a day, that's uh, quite something to do for Australian customs and uh, quarantine because they are very strict, as I understand. I don't know if it's just against the Brits. Are they just making it difficult for us? I'm not sure. Someone have to someone have to, 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 to let me know. It's just it, it's, it's an in-joke with the Aussies that each time a Brit comes, they have to make their, clean their bike to within an inch of its life. Um, no, it, it's definitely... So you go round with a, round with a toothbrush. Well, exactly. To, that, that would be, yeah, that would yeah. be an Australian-type <laughs> joke, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. No, it was um, yeah. The border cut the, the customs controller obviously um, 
are obviously very, very, very um, concerned about uh, about bringing different types of diseases from farm, you know, farm animals uh, and farming into the into the country. Uh, so that you have to clean the bike literally you know better than you better than factories so i found a um i there's a hotel near the airport with a car wash next door and i basically um brought this bike in i said look i'm going to australia and they sort of nodded at me um and uh, i said look i need it to be the cleanest you've ever seen this bike so they I said okay 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 so they myself and two others went went for this bike and just cleaned it within an inch of its life and uh even when we'd done about an hour and a half i was still going you know underneath the bash plates up the uh, the forks and in between the uh, the engine um uh, the sort of the, the, the lines on the engine and they were looking at me with this sort of as though you know the grand master of cleaning had arrived and these people that worked in the <laughs> in the in the in the car wash were were just amazed to see this westerner uh, you know on, on basically lying on the ground in a puddle of water trying to clean off the tiniest bit of muck they couldn't even see the dirt that i was trying to clean off uh and i remember them looking at me just thinking this is the craziest most deranged westerner we've ever seen um not only is he more thorough than us and that's never happened before but uh he, he's perfectly happy to lie in a puddle and, and to clean his motorbike he's what's wrong with them but obviously it paid off um because you know the day or two later i drove the bike into uh uh in, into the airport into kl airport uh up to the malaysia airlines booth and pretty much it, it was a case of handing the bike over just rolling it up to them putting it on the side stand locking my helmet to uh onto all, all of my bags and then um they wrapped it in plastic uh but no bike crate no nothing and they as far as i know uh, rolled it straight onto the plane so i i booked a flight out of kl at midnight that night and i remember taking off and there was definite sense on that on that Air Asia plane as I took off, with only a rucksack to my name. Uh, you know, if that bike had got lost, I literally had a rucksack with about two boxes, a laptop, a wash bag, uh, and a you know, pair of socks and a t-shirt with me. So I had the bare bare minimum to be going to a new country um, and leaving leaving a continent. But there was definitely an enormous sense of the distance that I covered to to be flying out of KL Airport, having driven there. Uh, rather than having you know got a connecting flight from london or whatever you know, the, the the all the sort of the memories and the experiences of the past five six months came suddenly very very vivid became very vivid as i took off saw the lights of kl down to my right um and 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 we started heading south over the uh um over the uh, yeah sumatra sea towards uh towards australia so um yeah, it must have been a, a huge relief to be then reunited with your bike in Perth. Relief and a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was definitely tracking. I had the the, the plane tracker. My, my my bike had a GPS too, so I was roughly aware of where it was at any given time. And I was half expecting to open my GPS app one day and just see my bike being ridden around KL or into Malaysia, <laughs> into Malaysia by one of the customs officials. <laughs> I thought, well, there you go. Very nice bike. Thank you very much. You, this idiot's left it here and he's just he assigned it over to us. So uh, luckily it didn't. And it was flown direct uh, with Malaysia Airlines to to Perth Airport. Um, and I, I think about a week or so later, I was able to then go and pick it up. It passed the stringent inspection, inspections of the Australian uh, Customs and Border Police. Uh and I was in Australia suddenly. It was a case of, they looked at it, said, okay, yeah, good to go. And then they pulled the shutter down of the border, border control behind me. And there I was just standing there suddenly with my bike wrapped in plastic, um, keys in my hand at, uh, at this random depot of Perth airport. And I remember looking around and just thinking, is this, this is actually, this is actually real. I mean, I'm, I now have my bike again, uh, having not seen it for, for two or three weeks. Um, and it's in Australia. And I'm legal in Australia, and I've and I've ridden here. So, I unwrapped it, the plastic, started the bike up. It started on the bottom, and um, making sure I was on the right side of the road, I uh, I then drove uh, drove over the bridge into Perth, in, in, into into the city of Perth, which is a, is an absolutely beautiful, amazing green cosmopolitan um, but isolated city. Perth is the most isolated big city in the world. And I would never have guessed that, but it is, because obviously to its west is the Indian Ocean. To its north is, you know, nothing and then ocean and then, you know, the nearest big city is sort of Darwin. Um, to its east is the Nullarbor and nothing until Adelaide. And to its south is obviously the Antarctic. 
So it is the most isolated city in the world, um, which is incredible. And I had, uh, you know, and because it is so so amazing and such a such a, a vibrant modern place, and yet it is it is so isolated. So um, and 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 so and so well known as the city too. Uh, and so from there, uh, Jack, the, the the plan was to ride. Um, uh, across the continent, basically, from Perth to Sydney. Is that right? Cross-continental dash, yes. We left Perth and headed sort of, uh, east, southeast towards Margaret River. Um, the heat is sort of starting to build. It's December and this is, you know, clearly the Aussies are, are, are nowhere heat waves coming. And so every day it gets a little bit hotter, a little bit hotter as we move southeast and then begin to head east towards the famous Nullarbor. Um, the last stop before Nullarbor is a town, I think it's uh, Esperance, there's an amazing beach at Esperance. Um, and as we're going south through the vineyards, surf, you know, surfing competitions, and you've got two pale, pale Brits turning up at a surfing competition, just like, you know, trying to understand what's going on um, and looking completely out of place. Uh, and then we turned up and really committed to the Nullarbor. I remember one day, the day before we got to the famous sort of stretch of where it begins of nothingness. I was looking on um, on the map and I thought, ah, I've got an off-road route, about a 120k off-road route, which would cut across this, you know, big turnoff and basically take us onto the Nullarbor proper. We're going to skip. We had to go north about 100k. I said, I don't want to do that. Let's just cut the cut the corner and go straight there, across yeah, cross country. And I said, well, have a look at the have a look at the fire app. Have a look at the app which tells you where the fires are, because I don't want to be driving into a bushfire and me being me said nah, nah i'll be fine it's a fire it's not going to be it's not going to be burning on the road is it? there's nothing to burn on the road we just ride through it um we then looked at the fire map and it was quite literally the route i chosen went straight through an enormous sea of red where basically there was you know a territory the size of hertfordshire or whatever was on fire um and we emailed, we called ahead to some of the road, to one of the roadhouses, and they said, "Don't come anywhere near. We evacuated yesterday. It is, it is absolutely on flames. Um, and those fires can move faster than a motorbike can ride um, with the wind speeds." So, uh, one of those moments where I thought, if I'd been by myself, I probably would have just gone into that, and um, I probably would have turned around before you know, at some point. Well, maybe not, but um, yeah, wisdom prevailed. We took the road to uh, Eucla or um, Baladonia, I think it was, where the, where the Nullarbor starts, and then the straights just start, and you are just going, 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 flat out in fifth gear, tucked in for the wind, um, for endless kilometres. Um, the only company you have is the occasional you know, roo, kangaroo that you see, uh, including a close encounter, one came out of the road, and as we were told quite early on, don't presume. Don't think, oh, they'll just cross and we just go behind them, it'll be fine. Because when you frighten a kangaroo, they're such stupid animals that instead of running off when they see you, they will go back to the last point of safety, which was the other side of the road. So I had a complete example of this moment when I was driving along, I saw a roo cross 50 meters ahead of me. I thought, ah, cool, easy, that was a coach shave, could have been a bit closer if I'd been there. And as I was driving along, I looked at it, on the other side of the road, it turns, looks at me, clearly is a bit startled, and then proceeds to, instead of going off and getting out of there, it then starts bounding back across the road as I'm coming towards it. And it's just, I could have reached out and just, you know, clicked it by the, on the back of the head as it came. This thing was taller than me. This is a six foot five jacked, like Arnold Schwarzenegger with a tail and like long bouncy legs. It was just this enormous kangaroo. Um, so I had a very close shave with that and learned the lesson afterwards to just completely give them a wide berth if you can. Um, and uh, we just hammered it across the Malibu, absolutely hammered it. Um, woke up in early in the morning on the road by sort of, you know, seven, eight o'clock, flat out until the, the petrol ran out, basically. Stopped in the fuel station, filled up the petrol, flat out again for another four hours. So it was just relentless. And the distance we covered, one day we covered, you know, well over 500k a day. Um, just trying to get the distance done. And um, I think, to be honest, whilst anyone listening to this will think, well, that sounds bloody boring. Well, you know, why would you want to go and do that? Actually, there's something about the isolation and the sense of covering enormous, vast distance, which brings Australia alive for me now. And when you look at a population map of Australia and you've got 
two percent of two percent of the population live in about ninety five percent of the country, and then you've got ninety eight percent of the population live in the area around sort of New South Wales, Sydney, uh, Adelaide, Melbourne, and then Perth, and then in the middle there's just nothing. And we that rams the Nullarbor rams it home. You're you're separated by desert to your left, sea to your right, and all you have ahead of you is just flat, barren plains. And Nullarbor means without trees in in, in the local Aborigine language, um, and you can completely see why because it's just a barren landscape of emptiness, um, with the only occasional the road train the big lorries come rocketing past you at a limited speed of 120 kph. So when you go past, you know, you're cut in against the wind, bracing as the wind is blowing a crosswind across you. So you're already leaning into the wind a little bit. But when a road train comes past you, the first impact of the wind, as anyone will know on a bike, is like a full body blow. And then you've got the separation between each um, between each uh, truck, each sort of part of the train, which obviously the wind can get through. So you have no wind. Massive wind, no wind, massive wind, no wind, massive wind. So it's basically like being inside a tumble dryer on the bike, um, which is very, very scary because generally the front of the roan trains have one or two kangaroos, dead kangaroos, in the grill, which they've just ploughed through in the night because they don't stop. They they just they, they have to keep going and then pick the kangaroo out at the next ro- at the next road stop. So you're going along, you you can smell these things sometimes before they hit you, and then there's just this kind of turbulent horribleness as it goes past. Um, so I won't even go into what it's like to try and overtake these things, given that fully laden, the Himalayans max speed is around the same speed the road trains go. So if you get stuck behind one, the dirty air behind you, don't want to be stuck in that. But then again, if you want to overtake, it's probably going to take you about three months. Um, so it was an interesting, interesting week or so across the Nullarbor with my dad, both on Himalayans, because by that, you know, obviously he got, he got a Himalayan from, from Royal Enfield, Perth. And, you know, stopping in motels, getting a really basic meal down you, getting to bed, sleeping up in the morning next day. Um, and one story that I will tell quickly before um, uh, sort of move on to the, ne- the next point would be a town called Eucla in the middle of the Nullarbor. So if you go type in Eucla in Google Maps, it'll take you straight to the middle of the Nullarbor. It's this rocky outcrop. You're going along the desert and suddenly you see ahead of you a rocky outcrop, a little hill, the rise to a ridgeline and Eucla sits on top. And... I remember as I was driving along that day, I suddenly, on this road, dead straight road ahead of me, shortly after the 90-mile straight, which is the longest road in Australia, longest straight road in Australia, 90 miles, 120, 30 kilometers, dead straight, not a corner in sight, the most boring road I think I've ever driven on. Um, And we got to, I suddenly see this rocky outcrop ahead of me, I'm thinking, oh, that must be Eucla. Okay, I know where we are. We're not far from far now. And then suddenly I see this, what looked like a zebra crossing starts emerging from the road ahead of me. And I rock it over this zebra crossing. I think that that has to be an Aussie joke. Surely, surely someone has, is taking the mick here. Thinks it's funny, just sort of got a bit drunk. I thought, why don't we just go and paint a zebra crossing down on that road down there where no one is ever going to cross or ever going to need to cross. And I just I started laughing to myself thinking, that is a hilarious joke if someone's actually done that. But then about a kilometre or so later, I came across another one and rocketed over that too. And I remember thinking, no, what? Yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. So we get to Eucla, and one of the first questions I asked the, 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 the motel or the roadhouse owner, who was a completely tattooed, heavily, real Aussie, strong Aussie accent. All right, that is proper, proper Aussie. It came out in sandals, flip-flops and a, uh, sorry, flip-flops and uh, shorts, uh, wife-beater vests and a beer. And he basically said... Um, I said, yeah, what's, what's, what's the, is, that, is that you painting the zebra crossing down there? I said, what do you mean? It's zebra crossing. You're talking about your, your silly pom. What, what are you talking about? And I said, no, the, the, the lines on the road. He said, that's not a zebra crossing, mate. It's a runway. Um, and it's, 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 it's the start. I've I'd driven over the start and the finish of a runway for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And he said to me, they saved my life a few months ago. I said, well, how, did you, how do they do that? And he said, well, I was out in my garden, taking the washing out in a basket, there was a tiger snake coiled up, resting in the sun, in the morning sun. I walked out with a fag, fag, fag in my mouth, a beer in one hand with my washing, and basically couldn't see where I was, I was, I was walking and stepped clean on the tiger snake. Tiger snake clearly thinks, uh, excuse me, turns around and bites him on the ankle. And a tiger snake is one of the most venomous snakes in the world. One bite is fatal. Um, and so at that point, any normal person would think, I've just been bitten by a tiger snake. Let's get, let's get moving sharpish to a hospital. 
no, this guy, I think it's Tyler was his name was, turned around, drops the basket of washing, runs back inside and thinks, rather than phoning the, the ambulance, I'm going to pick up my rake and go and give it to this tiger snake. So he walks back out into the garden, lifts the rake above his head. As he lifts the rake above his head to smack this tiger snake, the tiger snake goes in for round two and gets him on the other ankle. So this guy's now got two fatal fatal bite wounds from a, from a tiger snake. Um, and at that point, you really do think, you call it a day. You know, fair play to the tiger snake, 2-0, match over, go home for, 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 for tea and biscuits. But he was having none of that. He walks back in, gets a machete and a rolling pin, apparently, walks back out, at this point, manages to land a blow with the rolling pin. I'm not sure why he, he went for the rolling pin first. Anyone would go with the machete first, surely. But he hits the bottom of the tiger snake, which only proceeds to launch the tiger snake towards him, which then bites his shin. So he now has three fatal bites of a tiger snake. Um, and at that point, apparently his his, his wife, or uh, presumably his ex-wife now, um, you know, long-suffering, calls it and says, you cannot, you know, calls the flying doctor service, the Flying Doc Service, which is this amazing, amazing um, medical team, fly out. I think it was from Adelaide, or yeah, from Adelaide, you know, several hundred miles away. Fly, take up, take off in this twin seater, you know, quite small little Cessna single, um, single uh, twin prop. Sorry, land on the road outside the the road station. So they get, he gets driven down. Two cars shut the road off. Obviously, there's nothing to shut off because no one's on that road anyway. Um, plane lands. He gets on, and the person next to him um, is sitting there with a, with, a, with a cigarette in his mouth, with his, his leg half chopped off by a chainsaw. So he just told this amazing story of the two of them sharing a beer uh, with some morphine in them and some sort of anti-venom, being flown to Adelaide Hospital, and obviously they both survived due to this amazing surface. And he uh, he now tells the tale to every traveller that comes that way, um, that he, how, he, how he had his life saved by the um, RF, RFPI, or RFPL, or whatever it is. Um, an amazing story and a completely alien place to someone like the UK where you just, you can't drive more than five minutes without seeing a petrol station or somebody else or a house or whatever. It's a, it's quite a different quite a different lifestyle and one that uh, I really, I could uh, I could see myself falling easily into a, you know, a life in the bush. Um, no worries in the world and uh, just tiger snakes for company. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from here, your target was to get to uh, Sydney, I believe, for uh, New Year's Eve. Absolutely. Is that right? Absolutely. So we, yeah. we, we crossed another ball, got a great photo, Dad and I. Definitely a sense of achievement when you got to the end um, because suddenly you're back in civilization and you're back into uh, into um yeah, seeing towns and cities and actually having places to stop for a, for a coffee if you want to as as millennial as that sounds um and pretty much we got to got to adelaide um and then all, all the way around to, to melbourne did the great ocean road um which i have to say was i was slightly underwhelmed by just due to the amount of people that were that were that were doing it it was a, it would be a lovely biking road but there were just too many coaches of, of tourists really going um tra- traversing back and forth uh we got to melbourne for christmas um uh, very i was very fortunate to have uh the, the, the family uh, my, my two sisters and my mother um, were able to fly out to melbourne and, and meet us for christmas um which we had there and then uh, after christmas in melbourne we all basically went up hit the road to sydney but this is where the fires um really started to to, to, to ram home in terms of the the horrific impact of a, of a continent basically ablaze and it sounds dramatic but it's not and i'm and i don't think you, anyone can overplay it you look at some of the satellite imagery of australia at that time in december 2019 and you've got areas the size of wales on fire you know, and not just a little bit of a blaze proper treetop burning infernos um and i remember several days the heat obviously went through the roof too it was the hottest december on record the hottest three days in history, the worst bushfires Australia's ever seen, uh, and not close, it was by a long, long way. Um, and so there were days when I'd wake up in the morning, you'd wake up to the smell of smoke, thick smoke in your nose. Um, you'd walk around in this haze of just sort of post-apocalyptic fog and, and, and weird sort of smoky, um, bizarre landscapes. You'd drive along dystopian roads where you'd sort of look down into valleys and you couldn't see more than, you know, 50, 100 metres and there'd be, you know, sadly dead animals by the side of the road, charred out and tried to get to, you know, to, to out of the fire, but it moved too quickly. So we're constantly checking fire, the fire app to see where the fires are. Many, many, many of the of the campsites and the roads that you'd like to have done, the Blue Mountains, for example, were completely 
um, effectively a blaze. They were gone. Um, those lovely forests, beautiful forests that you think of up there were just gone. Um, and there were, you know, equally days due to the temperature, um, if the fire and the smog and the f- and, and, and the smoke didn't really get you, then the heat did. Uh, and I cannot tell you what driving through forty five degree heat feels like on a bike. Um, but the Himalayan is air cooled. <laughs> so, uh, as someone said to me at the time, um, you know, sure it's, it's okay. You can just sort of ride in the wind. I said, well, there's no an air cooled engine doesn't really work if the air outside cooling it is forty five degrees because you you can't cool anything with forty five degrees and clearly the wind chill that you have on a bike is non-existent at 45 degrees because you're, you're basically driving in a sauna. Um, and there were days when you walk, I'd drive along, I'd find the nearest, after about half an hour, I'd get so hot, I'd find the nearest petrol station, fill up, put the bike on the center stand, sort of try and get it, get, get any air through the engine at all, put the, refuel the fuel, walk into the, uh, into the shop, go to the nearest fridge freezer, pick up two, two liter bottles of water, Walk back outside, you know, say thank you very much, you know, walk back outside. Uh, and generally they'd be looking at me because uh, not many people were biking around then. There, was, there weren't many bikes. Everyone was in air-conditioned cars. And I'd walk out, stand by the bike, unscrew carefully one of the uh, one of the two-litre bottles of water and just promptly empty it above my head, the entire two litres, just completely drench myself as I'm making normally making eye contact with a person behind the desk in the petrol station who were looking at me as though I'm just a complete creature. Um, and then the second bottle of water I save with the bike. So I pull that over the brake disc, pull it over the engine, uh, just try and cool the bike down too so the temperatures didn't go through the roof. Um, but that went on for you a know, week or two, weeks, a week and a half, two weeks. But finally we made it to Sydney um, for New Year's Eve 2019, 2020, um, and saw the fireworks in Sydney Harbour, the last fireworks to, I think, maybe last this last one they did, they did show, but the year before they didn't. Um, so I remember standing on a hill above Sydney Harbour, watching the fireworks go off, thinking, um, you know, I've driven here. And that was quite an amazing feeling to, uh, to to think that I could close my eyes and every, you know, I'm lucky to have a fairly good memory when it comes to location. I can close my eyes and just imagine almost like a, a, a sped up video shot, a GoPro video shot. When you see those sped up videos of just you fly through the country, I could quite literally do that and see, you know, Eurasia in my head. Um, and that was quite a, that was quite a surreal moment of just thinking, wow, you know, I've traveled a serious, serious way now. And then we arrive at the decision, naturally, what happens next? And next proved to be South America. It did indeed. It did indeed. It's the natural next step. Mm -hmm. Um, I had thought about New Zealand, flying the bike to Auckland and going down to the South Island and doing all of that stuff. But firstly, the cost would be, I'd be adding a flight on, so I'd be adding one flight from Sydney to Auckland, and then, you know, the flight from Christchurch to to um, uh, to Santiago in Chile um, is a lot more expensive than Sydney straight to Santiago. So, for budgetary reasons, the one country that I've long long wanted to go and see New Zealand. New Zealand is. Just, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings and a bit of a nerd uh, when it comes to that. So, uh, New Zealand has always been this sort of magical misty mountain filled uh place of just dreams but i remember being in sydney thinking this is i can't don't have the budget for it and um i took the decision to uh fly the bike to santiago um i my, my plan had always been you know no what don't don't tell anyone you go and do this record don't tell it's not about that it's you're going to set off get as far as you can if you get to sydney Great. And that's all I'm going to aim for. You know, break it down into, I say, bite-sized chunks. London to Sydney is 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 not bite-sized. It's a pretty big chunk. Um, but break it down into at least, okay, well, like, that's my end, end point. Sydney was always my end goal. And when I got there, I thought, I just know, I, I just haven't, it would really annoy me to fly back now, even though it would be the you know, cheapest option to fly back from back to London. That would have been, you know, by far the cheapest. I can go back. I've had my fun. You know, pat yourself on the back. You've done, done. You've done good, and then, you know, uh, you could dine out, dine out on the sort of the memories for the rest of your rest of uh, rest of your days. But there was just something which said to me, "You're going to regret it." And there's so much, you know, South America that has always been in my in my imagination of of, of you know, the history, the culture, the language, um, and the riding, the roads, the mountains, the fjords, the deserts, the you know. So I just thought, no, I need to, I need to go on. And I remember 
putting my family on a plane and uh, they've been with me. I had you know, with my, my, my dad and my, my, my siblings with me for a month. Um, and then they were, I was by myself again and it was adjusting to, okay, I'm back by myself. The, the small taste of home that I had in Australia was ripped away and it was now right. Get the bike on a plane, Royal Enfield, Sydney, um, had had a bike, had a Himalayan bike frame, metal frame lying around there about to throw away. And I said, have it. Um, I got new tires on, I think Metzeler's I got in Sydney for the first time, which proved to be my favorite tire um, by far. And I remember packing the bike up um, and the morning I had to get it to the air, the morning the truck was coming to pick the bike up, as is always with me. I'm a little bit last minute with literally everything. So um, I got to the point where I got everything ready, panniers are off bike was sort of strapped down okay we're good to go and i thought bugger where am i gonna put my panniers i can't put my panniers in hold luggage in, in in you know in hand luggage on the plane so i'm gonna to have to make something and there were great big holes in the bottom so if, if anyone picked it up the panniers just drop out the bottom of the crate so i had this moment i had about half an hour absolutely legged it to a diy store down the road bought some wood bought some uh, a saw ran back to the bike crate it was just frantically soaring two planks together to fit in the bike crate panjas fit okay they're not going to fall out you know gaffer tape or, or plastic tape the whole thing up um and then the, the truck arrived bang on time and then uh forklift truck picks the bike up onto the back of a lorry lorry door closes and there i am standing suddenly again like i was in, in kl i lit you know the, the door closed the lorry drove off out of this car park and there i was standing in royal enfield sydney's car park um with uh, just a saw and a plank of wood, <laughs> whereas I'd, I'd had a, I'd had my whole bike and all of my belongings about ten minutes before. Suddenly, I had nothing again, and I think I flew to, I got a plane across the Pacific to Santiago, Chile, uh, about a th- three or four days later. Whereas my bike went to Houston, Texas, and then Texas to somewhere else, and then finally to Santiago, um, where I picked it up on the twenty seventh of January, twenty twenty. So. Um, then really if i look back at it now that's when everything you know started to started to slowly slowly slip downhill in terms of the world around me and in terms of my ability to be free um which uh yeah is obviously uh is a, is a long old story in itself <laughs> yeah but before you started heading north you to from santiago you turned south and started to explore the chilean lake district exactly right exactly and this is something that actually through social media um it was quite interesting because i put out you know i don't i don't have a, a big following at all and actually it's quite nice having a smaller group of people who are vested in the trip and who you speak to on a regular basis and i can sort of keep tabs with who who is following along and who has done trips of their own and who has good advice to give. And um, there's something really, really cool about that. And I've met a lot of people who were, who gave me advice since coming back, which is awesome to meet somebody, the face behind an Instagram profile. People are often very different in real life. Um, and uh, it's awesome to be able to thank them personally for, for advice they gave when I was in, in, you know, in a tricky situation on the other side of the world. But I got to Santiago and I put up on Instagram, I put a, um, a post, a, a poll basically saying, do I go north through the Atacama Desert, straight into Bolivia, and just go to Colombia as fast as I can? Or, and I did make this a little bit of a weighted question, or do I head south through Chile and Patagonia, through the amazing lake lands and the volcanoes and all the way south, basically uh, down the, um, the incredible and genuinely incredible Carretera Austral, which is this mountain fjord road through Chile and Patagonia. Turn into Argentina and then go all the way up the Ruta, the legendary Ruta Corrente, the Ruta 40 up uh, uh, Argentina. And obviously everyone said, do that. <laughs> so I think two people said, go through the Atacama Desert. Um, and, uh, and I haven't heard from them since. So uh, yeah, I, I basically ended up being in Santiago for a few, for a few a week or so, got the bike back. Um, I got tear gas in Santiago during the riots and the, the massive riots that were happening in Chile in 2020. I remember being in a restaurant, um, one of those sort of outdoor uh, industrial type restaurants. There's lots of cabins and bars in the same place. And um, being with a few tourists, we heard some sort of shouting, some um, protest march going on nearby about nine o'clock at night. So it was getting dark. And then suddenly we just heard dum, 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 and canisters just came flying into the, into the area around us. Um, my initial reaction was to look at it and, and think it was a grenade. Uh, because that's, it, just, it looked like a grenade. But then suddenly it just starts, you know, 
absolutely pissing out um, uh, CS gas and 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 basically uh, pepper spray. Um, and it's one of those things that suddenly people just started, you know, wailing. And when you breathe it in, it just gets into the back of your head, right at the back where your sinuses are, and your nose starts streaming, and you start crying, and you can't see, and you can't barely breathe. Um, so it was a really interesting, well, I say interesting, it was, it was pretty horrible at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, right there as the protests are happening, as young people are trying to sort of decide the future um, and push the future of the country one way, end up getting stuck right in the middle of it. So um, Santiago, I thought, was an amazing city. And for that, experiences like that, whilst they are extreme, um, teach you a lot about the place. Um, which I then went to Valparaiso on the coast, which is this amazing port city, again, very dangerous in some parts. Lots of the protests were going on, quite a bit of violence at the time, but amazing culture, colourful houses and brilliant music, you know, real, real authentic uh, um, traditional uh, history. And then I went all the way down the Pacific coast. So again, this is just, I, I, I smile as I say it because I didn't see anyone else. I didn't see anyone else on the road at this time going along this Pacific highway, basically. When I look down and I see this, you know, black, um, black sand volcanic beaches of the Pacific Ocean and just and you're smiling to yourself as you're riding south through Chile, the Pacific's to your right, um, the Andes to you, always present to your left. So you're between the sea and the and the mountain sea in the sky really, the sea and the mountains. Um through the lakes, climbed some volcanoes, did some awesome some trekking around there, um, adventure paradise, and then finally got to the Carretera Austral. We have to get three ferries onto the onto this amazing mountain road. Um, and that was just nirvana. Uh, and if, if somebody asked me, where would I go back tomorrow? I'd probably get a pedal bike and cycle the Carretera Austral because it is just, uh, overlanding, you know, heaven Mecca. Um, but that took me all the way South through blizzards, through, um, you know, really icy, icy cold mornings, some absolute torrential downpours, um, nearly running out of fuel several times and effectively got to a point where the road runs out uh, and you have to drop into Argentina, which is what I did. I dropped into Argentina, crossed the border um, with a few bikers. Actually, I met a few bikers across, across the border um, and suddenly I was in Argentina and I swung north. I had, I, had, sorry, I had another choice. Do I go south to Ushuaia, get the photo that everyone gets and then go back go back on myself another 400, 500K, you know, several days riding just to get a photo? when winter's already turning and I was hearing, you know, sounds about COVID suddenly. So I thought, nah, this, it's just not, there will be a day, a time and a day when I'll do Canada to Ushuaia, you know, Alaska to Ushuaia, another day. That's one for a future trip. Uh, and I hopefully I'll be able to. Um, so I swung the bike north through the wind of Patagonia. I had about a week or two of wild camping every single day, uh, putting up on the side of the road, sleeping in the desert, waking up in the morning at four or five o'clock in the morning when the sun rose above the desert, getting packed up on the road again. Same story the next night, sleep in a campsite, turns out I had a pool, had the pool to myself for about pound fifty for an evening, which is wonderful. And then you, so just so many experiences and days and, you know, so many moments that pop out at me as being incredible moments just by themselves, let alone into you know, a two-year, um, or what I thought would be a one-year voyage, what was planned to be a one-year voyage. Um, got to Mendoza, wine, steak, a lot of fun, carried on to the north, Argentina, right up to the Bolivian border, did the salt flats um, in northern Argentina and some of the uh, Rainbow Mountains in the northern Argentina. Went into Bolivia, must have been about February, mid-Feb 2020, Um did, did the Silver Mountain, Potosi in the south, Did the went into the mines underneath this uh, Cerro Rico, as the Spanish conquistadors called it, because that was where the Spanish took, plundered all of the silver and took all of that silver to Buenos Aires, which obviously means good airs uh, on, on the side of the Rio de la Plata. And what's interesting is you can trace the Spanish map from you know Rio de la Plata, which is the river that, that the capital of Argentina sits on, obviously means river of river of plata, river of money, river of silver. Um, and where does the river of silver come from? It comes from all the way up in Bolivia and this mountain in Bolivia, which was just a, an absolute, you know, um, silver mine, literally of, 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 of silver ore. So I remember climbing into these 
into this mountain uh, behind a Bolivian guide. Uh, and he said to me before we got there, you have to bring some presents for the miners. So I thought we would be taking, I don't know, a cake. We might take a, a present for their kids or, you know, some some sort of present. And I and I turned up thinking, okay, well, let's, let's buy some presents. And he said, no, no, no. We turned up at this store and this store sold three things. Um, 99% alcohol, uh, cocaine leaves, coca leaves, and dynamite. Um, <laughs> this this was the selection of presents for the miners. So I turned up. I remember just thinking, this is surreal. Had my miners hard hat on, um, full, you know, one uh, uh, boiler suit, and then basically carried a, a basket of cocaine, um, uh, <laughs> dynamite, and uh, almost 100% alcohol into the mountain through these crevasses and finally found some miners deep within who were just basically throwing sticks of dynamite down cracks in the rock, walking around the corner, putting their hands in their ears, drinking some alcohol, bang, and then chewing the cocaine leaves to um, uh, to, to help the altitude. So it was a weird moment just before COVID really hit where I was just sort of blown away by a different culture and a different way of living and the danger, the dangerous jobs that those people live to just earn meager salaries in, in compared to London. Um, yeah, sure. So, and I, and I think it's probably fair to say at this point that's where your journey kind of, uh, well, everything really turned to custard for you uh, in Peru, uh, well, in Bolivia, and then heading towards Peru. Yes, exactly. That seems like the perfect place to leave it for today. Thanks, Jack. As Jack has so many fascinating stories to tell, we've extended this series to three episodes, so do make sure to join us for the final thrilling instalment. You really do not want to miss it. But before you go, here's that promised Gordon's History Nugget. Although Jack is the youngest person to ride around the world on any motorcycle, he's not the first to have done it on a Royal Enfield. The first known Royal Enfield circumnavigation was by Nick Saunders, MBE. In 1992, he rode around the world on a Royal Enfield 500 bullet, covering 38,000 miles in seven months. Interestingly, that wasn't his first jaunt around the globe. In 1985, he set a world record for the fastest bicycle circumnavigation, in the process raising £20,000 for BBC's Children in Need. Since then, he's also set a blistering 19-day world record for fastest motorcycle around the world. But not on a Royal Enfield, of course. Well, that really is all for now. To ensure you don't miss the conclusion to Jack Grove's record-breaking Round the World Odyssey and any future episodes, do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have ideas and suggestions for future episodes, do get in touch by email, ridepurepodcast at royalenfield.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like, add us to your favourites, and even leave a review. Until then, we wish you great roads and safe riding.